Good afternoon. Welcome to Thursday's panel. Lovely to have your company. We have Ruth Money and Peter Field with me. Uh, this first, uh, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins admitted he shut down plans for a tax switch in this year's budget, which would have seen a tax-free bracket and a 1.5% tax on wealth above $5 million from 2024. I'm confirming today that under a government I lead, there'll be no wealth or capital gains tax after the election. End of story. He said yesterday, saying uh, now is simply not the time for a big shake-up of our tax system. Finance Minister Grant Robinson said he felt a wealth tax had merit, but stood by the Prime Minister's point that it was an uncertain and volatile time for the economy. Well, the Green Party, they proposed a wealth tax uh, would change would charge rather 2.5% on net assets above $2 million held by an individual and a 1.5% tax on any wealth held in a trust. With us is Professor Craig Eliff, who specialises in the field of international tax, corporate tax and tax avoidance uh, at the law faculty at uh, the University of Auckland. Uh, Professor Eliff, welcome. Uh, kia ora, Wallace. Tēnā Nice to have you on, uh, Craig. Let's do the wealth tax first. Can we just start with an explainer? And my first question is, actually, what is it? Um, well, it's um, it's pretty simple, really. Uh, you, It's a net wealth tax, so that you take all the assets that you own, which might be uh, your house, um, although that is a bit sort of controversial in the sense that uh, the proposal that uh, the government was looking at uh, excluded the family home. But you take all your other other assets and and then you subtract any liabilities that you might have uh, and then you um, impose a, a simple tax as a percentage of that net wealth which you have to value on an annual basis. So very, very sort of kind of straightforward, just your your balance as it okay. was of net wealth multiplied by a, a low percentage. And what, in your view, because you you, you specialise in the field of international tax, what of other countries that have a wealth tax? Uh, do they do it? Is it a quite the thing or less so? <laughs> no, it's very much not the thing. Oh. Um, there are only five countries in the world that have a wealth tax of type. Uh, that the Greens are talking about and that that that, uh, that um, the government was looking at and which Chris Hipkins rejected. Uh, so those five countries are there are three in uh, in Europe and the OECD and and two in South America. So it's a it's a rare beast indeed. There aren't uh, many uh, examples to be found. Um, and uh, generally speaking, um, it is. Uh, not it's it's a declining um, form of tax. There were, if you were to go back a couple of decades, uh, you would have been able to have found um, sort of twelve countries in the OECD, okay. and, and now there are only three. So. All right, gosh, okay, that's interesting. All right, um, Craig, stay there. Let's bring our panelists. In. Should we start with you, Peter? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, what's your view on them, Craig? While you have your, you're an expert. What do you think about them? Uh, well, look. Um, my, my view is that uh, we need a new tax base. We need a tax base uh, which does look at uh, people's capital rather than just their income or their consumption. 
All right, so that's so interesting. GST right. looks after consumption. So yeah. you think we unfairly tax labor in some way? We unfairly tax work as opposed to assets that are acquired in some other way, right? We, we quite heavily tax labor, and we certainly do uh, even tax sort of modest incomes, uh, labor incomes. We we uh, we don't allow any deductions, um, and we, on the whole, um, sort of pretty ruthlessly effective at taxing labor. And am I right, um, um, Professor, to say that we haven't adjusted for inflation over the years either in terms of our tax brackets? So that may be something, an opportunity yeah. mm. to align things uh, more fairly? Absolutely, Ruth. Yeah, yeah, 100% right. The, the, uh, there's this uh, phenomenon known as fiscal drag, which is the, the consequence of um, inflation affecting levels of income when you hold the tax rates and you've got a progressive tax system, so you impose higher rates on higher incomes, the natural outcome uh, is that over time people get taxed more heavily on the same, you know, sort of amount of of uh, economic income if you were to adjust for inflation. Okay. Now, so can, so sorry, the, keep going. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, I was going to say, I wanted to jump in and say, um, uh, what about the other aspect, and that, that is the capital gains tax, long been discussed uh, off the table. So, if a wealth tax is only in what three to five countries around the world, used to be twelve. What about a capital gains tax? How common is that overseas? Much more orthodox. You you kind of move from uh, very much the unorthodox to uh, complete uh, right. Completely orthodox in the capital gains tax. So, so we we are really uh, alone, <clears throat> pretty much in the way in which we uh, have, uh, in, and particularly in the OECD and amongst the forty odd countries there, uh, we we are the only country that doesn't have uh, a comprehensive capital gains tax of of uh, to, to greater or lesser extents. But, but but most countries have um, uh, and have had for a long time. What about in the U.S. Peter? Yes, in the United States. So I do American taxes, so which is a, which is an effort. I assure you, um, yeah. it's a it's a cottage industry in its own. <laughs> really, um, but to be sure, there is part where, of course, you're taxed for your income, your wages, and you're taxed for other income, and that includes capital gains. In fact, one's even taxed on one's interest in one's savings account. So, so any way you've gained money over the year, you're taxed on it, and that seems, I guess, compared to work. Why should we say that work? should be taxed or labor should be taxed and other forms of income shouldn't be. You sell a million dollar, you sell a million dollar house in New York, what's the capital gain? Oh, you wouldn't want to know. In fact, in San Francisco, my brother and sister, God bless them, um, they, well, something, uh, they own a $5 million house and you can't sell it in San Francisco if you think you're going to get more than maybe $1.8 million out of it because it's going to be taxed that high. Hang on, what? Wow. So, uh, yeah, so, so there we go. Um, my main question... Did you hear that, it, Craig? So my main question for the listeners is to always try to talk about two things at the same time, which is income and outflow. So if you're going to tax people who are very wealthy and say, we'll take 1.5% of something, it's going to make a difference probably in their lives. No more, no second swimming pool or whatever, right? But the difference it makes for the government, which seems to be able to spend money and have such an issue with taking other people's money. We just say taxes like it's a just thing. And we should ask ourselves, what is our government? We what are we doing with the money, and are we nearly efficient enough with our own spending? Do you have a view on that, Craig? Uh, well, I think it's it, it's much more difficult for me to comment on yeah. spending. The only thing I would say is that uh, I think uh, when I, I think 
when we come to matters such as our health system, I think it needs a lot of money. Now, whether it's uh, the money that we give to it currently uh, is uh, is sufficient. It appears to be as though uh, it, it it has been there has been significant underspending for a period of time, and and right now uh, it looks as though we're incredibly short of resources. So um, I don't think there's um, I don't. I don't think there is a lack of need. Okay. Finally, I've got to ask you this, because yesterday, Professor Elif, we talked about a person that has brought in uh, to the country a, um, sit down for this, a $640,000 bottle of whiskey. Um, if we had a wealth tax, would that be taxed? <laughs> um, that's, it depends on the settings. I, I does that mean one dram for the Prime Minister? Is that what you're thinking, Wallace, as a tax? It's, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to open it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, well, that's right. Once, you, once you're drunk it, presumably your net wealth would decline by that amount. Good on you, Craig. Kia ora. Thanks for that. That's Professor Craig uh, Elif there. <laughs> uh, and we talk about whiskey very shortly. 17 past for the panel RNZ National. Well, one of Britain's leading television news anchors, Hugh Edwards, was named by his wife on Wednesday as the BBC presenter facing allegations he paid a young person thousands of pounds for sexually explicit photos, the broadcaster reported. He is a major figure announcing the death of Queen Elizabeth. The palace has just issued uh, this statement. It says the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. And has led coverage of the biggest events, including elections and royal weddings. The BBC suspended the presenter but did not name him. Several uh, stars then took to social media to say they weren't involved in speculation. London's Metropolitan Police found there was no indication a criminal offence had been committed. So just to look over this, we have Dr Neil Curtis, an Associate Professor of Media and Communication at Auckland University. Dr Curtis, welcome. Kia ora. So here we have a major face for the BBC. Uh, I mean, they have been in the gun of the last year or so, BBC. What sort of an issue does this present for this major public broadcaster? Um, well, it is a problem because, as you say, he's a, an institution. He almost is the face of BBC News. He's yeah. probably the most trusted anchor. Um, and, I, I, you know, it is, it is um, damage to their brand. But I sort of think we need to put it in a little bit of perspective, given that the BBC has, like, years ago survived Jimmy Savile, right? Um, Which was, you know, so horrific in in its scale and with those connections he had to the Conservative Party. But so the, the, the BBC has survived those kinds of scandals, um, I can't see that this would be anything but a sort of minor interruption to um, sort of normal normal programming. Um, it will certainly be a problem for them in the short term, um, but I, I don't think it will be anything that's lasting. I mean, there's always people sniping around the edges of the BBC, Um I mean, that comes with the territory. Interesting. Okay, thank you, uh, Neil, for that. Let's go around the panel on this, see what Ruth has to say uh, about this. 
personally, I couldn't care less about the BBC brand. Um, I am more concerned, actually, about a 17-year-old um, being paid a lot of money for explicit images. Um, and while uh, Hugh is certainly experiencing some mental distress by the sound of it, um, I, I just I really question whether a 17-year-old can consent to such a thing. Yes, the uh, police are saying there's no criminality involved, but as an advocate, a survivor... Um, allegedly. Uh, yeah, allegedly, um, there's no criminality. But I really struggle with a 17-year-old uh, giving explicit images in an exchange uh, with a senior person with that much money and that much money. Oh, OK, stay there. Neil, what do you reckon, Peter? Well, it's hard. I don't, I don't really have much to say about this because I don't really want to talk about it. I feel the less said, full stop, the better. Um, and, well, I guess Edwards' wife came out, and I guess to defend him, but I'm, I'm kind of with Ruth. I just hate the idea that the defense is, oh, he's a victim. I find that so tiresome. So somebody gets accused of something, oh, but they're a victim. They're suffering too. Um, really? Okay. So we should feel for Hugh Edwards. There is, there I find is, it there very is, There hard. is an aspect, though, uh, and people will say, did the son, uh, and this is one, there's one question that everyone wants to know, does the son have hard evidence to back up his allegations? Well, that th- was the question that was put in The Guardian. I think the wife and has really, confirmed the, it, though, right? Like her yeah, statement. But, but the son is really backtracking from this, and they are not going to proceed with the story. Some might say, Neil, that they're, they're trigger-happy. What do you think? Well, I mean, you, you can't trust the, the son at all, right? It's, 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 um, it's a terrible publication, I mean, this is, you know, the sort of publication owned by Rupert Murdoch. One of his publications was done for phone hacking, and that prompted the whole Leveson inquiry, which was abandoned in 2018. So, I mean, you know, let's remember we are talking about The Sun here. This is a a newspaper that regularly, you know, tells lies about all sorts of people, including kind of Liverpool fans. Um, I think the point that's been made about about... Hugh being a victim, I think that is absolutely appalling, right? There's only one victim here, and that is the person that the images were were taken from, right? Um, but I think, you know, you have to look at the, the, the media environment there, where the son is almost in complete opposition to the BBC as a public broadcaster. Um, so private media have always wanted to undermine the public broadcaster. Um, so it's very much sort of part of that. So they will they, they will be using this as much as an opportunity as right. they can, although, although recently the BBC has really been brought under quite significant political control, I think, under the Conservative Party. Um, so... Yes, there's some sort of internecine media struggle taking place, but we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the sun basically spread spread lies about anything whenever it can, and that the person we should be focusing on is the young person who was effectively, um, well, I, I don't know what the word would be, but but they have certainly been taken advantage of. And unfortunately, in the sort of societies we live in, 
there are thousands and thousands of these vulnerable people. And really, that's that's what we should be focusing on. I think the vulnerability of right. I think there's thousands and thousands of the abusers rather than the young people. Yes, but there are also, my point is simply that there's thousands and thousands of young people who are in very vulnerable positions and are therefore exposed to the thousands and thousands of abusers. Mm. Um, as, you know, and the BBC hosted one of the greatest in British history, right? The most infamous, the most right. vile, who was Jimmy mm. Savile. Mm. They've never um, so got it's... name suppression because they've got different rules over there. <laughs> right, And, yes. and interesting in, yeah. in this for me is, you know, Hugh and... and those other journalists have come out and outed themselves as this is not yeah. me. And again, that goes to my earlier point around suppression. Sure. You know, suppression yeah. will drive, if, if you hear an X all black, then all of a sudden mm. you're wondering, right? Yeah. Whereas if we had an, a true open and transparent system, uh, then that wouldn't have to happen. Uh, Dr Curtis, I appreciate you being on the panel this afternoon on that. That's okay. Thank that you. is uh, Dr. Neil Curtis, there, Associate Professor of Media and Communication at Auckland University. Uh, and just, uh, I wanted to jump to you actually regarding public media, Peter, um, because the BBC, as I mentioned there, it's it, it is a juggernaut. Uh, it's known around the world. But what I'd like to know is, uh, when you lived in the US, is NPR is their version of public radio? Is that listened to? Is that loved? Well, I think it is loved and it is listened to, but you're right. The comparison is apt yeah. insofar as there's just nothing like the BBC. And the BBC really, Jimmy Savile not accepted. It has a, a wonderful reputation for worldwide news, for breaking news, for bringing news to people. Um, the Council for Public Broadcasting in, in the United States is important, but it's just not even close to the... Is, to is the it, is it, as I understand, NPR is an absolute minnow in the media environment. And that's right. So because of the, 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 the size of the media environment, yes, it's, by the way, it's one of the reasons, folks, to think about staying home here and loving living in Australia. Oh, there you go. Good on you. Again. <laughs> and uh, on that, uh, keep those wonderful uh, tits coming because uh, it's the question of the day. If there is one place uh, that isn't Aotearoa that you would live, be it... Seville in Spain or Dubrovnik or Chicago, where would it be? Text me 210 when we come to that later. But I want to get back to this. Yesterday we told you that story, didn't we, of the world's oldest single malt whiskey has been sold in New Zealand. It's a bottle of Macallan the Reach made during World War II Scotland. How much for? Six hundred and forty thousand dollars You heard that right. Well, Daryl was listening and has a more emotional connection to whiskey. Welcome, Daryl. Good afternoon, Wallace and panel. Great to have you on. Tell us how whiskey, because you heard this, you sent us uh, a note. Tell us your story. Uh, yeah. Um, my father in 1982, he's British, went home to England and while he was over there, did a tour of Scotland and visited the Glenfiddich uh, distillery. Um, as a result of that, he brought home a couple of bottles. Uh, duty free, and from there on in, everybody in the family, whenever they went overseas, um, you know, those five boys all travelled at different times in the 80s and 90s and so forth. Uh, we all bought a bottle of Glenfiddich home for Dad. Um, <laughs> long story short, or sort of, um, he ended up uh, with quite a few bottles in the bar downstairs in the house, and um, he passed away five years ago, and uh, we were going through the the house and sorting stuff out as you do and 
we came across some of the bottles. Now, there's that many that when I was a teenager, I used to be able to steal two or three bottles and take them to a party and it wouldn't be a problem. It wouldn't be noticed. Okay. Um, Dad wasn't actually a big drinker, believe it or not. Special occasions and that was it, really. He was a collector, um, yeah. <laughs> so he never noticed a missing bottle or two. Um, right. Anyway, uh, I got one of the bottles given to, or a few bottles given to me, and one of them has the written on the bottom, 1994 December, uh, which is the year I came back from England with my fiancée to introduce it to the family. So we kind of figured, well, that must be a bottle I brought home from Judy Free or she brought home. So I ended up getting that bottle. Now, I'm still in proud possession of that bottle, oh. a uh, 12-year-old Glenfiddich single malt. Uh-huh. And I'm keeping it for my son's 21st, which will be in about three years' time. According to my mess, it'll be about 45 years old of bottle of scotch. Um, Personally, I think that outweighs the value of a $640 bottle. What if your son steals it? Oh, Ruth. (laughs) Well, you stole your dad's. I'm just asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) I'd never even thought of that. No, no, it's spoken for. We do have, um, unfortunately, we lost our eldest eldest brother uh, last month, and um, part of the funeral service was we had about 30 people there. We had a bottle of Glenfiddich, one of Dad's ones. We cracked it open. We had everybody have a wee dram at the side of the grave and toast my brother farewell. And uh, whenever I dad's birthday or something like that pops up, I go visit the grave site. I take a small miniature bottle of Glenfiddich. Oh. I have a sweet, a mouthful. So I honestly like it. Um, dad was a straight, neat, no ice, no mix. I'd rather it with ice. Okay, Daryl. Yeah, look, um, it sounds like you're absolutely whiskey-soaked, uh, <laughs> and there's wonderful stories there. But as you were saying off air, Peter, what we're hearing here is not the, just the, the, the sheer value. It's an emotional connection, isn't it? It's fa- family connection. Yes, well, that's clearly what we were just hearing. Uh, for me, I, I'm not particularly a whiskey drinker, but I certainly like wine. And uh, when you pop the cork on a wine bottle, there's something nice about thinking... I'm going to drink this. I'm going to drink this as long as it takes, hopefully with a friend. You tend not to drink alone. And that kind of sets aside that time. So then you look at other bottles. You know you're going to have that in the future. And the time you're going to set aside to drink that bottle is time out of time. And that's very wonderful, I find. How philosophical is that? Did you hear that, Daryl? That's a nice way of putting it. Very nice way. (laughs) And I'm sober now, so... <laughs> Very cool. Hey, thank you for your story, Daryl. That was really wonderful. No problem, All right, keep that uh, uh, keep that lid on that clean fitter uh, there, and just uh, keep collecting, Daryl. Good on you. Uh, it is four thirty. You are on the panel. RNZ National. Someone says, in defence of NPR, I lived in York uh, two thousand one, two thousand three, then Denver for two months. NPR was a sane lifeline during both stays. They may be minnows, but they were sane ones. Uh, and um, keep the wonderful um, feedback coming out. Where in the world would you live if it wasn't New Zealand? We're going to talk about what is the greatest country in the world. New Zealand has been knocked off the perch for the first time in 12 years, according to a big uh, UK poll. Uh, um, I will tell you what number one is, the country, but also I want to hear where you would like to resettle if you could.